Welcome to the audio sermons of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We hope you are encouraged by listening. For more information, please feel free to browse our site at www.sbrpc.org. Through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And today we're going to talk about Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through 20, which are printed in your bulletin, which will be on the screen behind me in a moment. I think I've mentioned this before, though maybe not publicly. I have, for those of you that know her, I have a very kind and loving wife who seeks to be an encouragement to me, and I I am very blessed by that. And like anyone, sometimes I do my job well. Um... Sometimes I don't do it as well, and uh, sometimes I preach good sermons and sometimes not as good sermons, and not wanting to discourage me when I preach one of those not-so-good sermons, instead of saying, that was terrible, um, she'll say something like this. She'll say, hmm, that must have been a really difficult passage, Uh, and... uh, I know what she means by that. Um, but um, whether or not this will be a good or not so good sermon, I, I don't know. Um, but truthfully, this is a really difficult and challenging passage that we're going to look at. Uh, probably the most difficult passage in the book of Galatians. Um, it's, it's very personal, which I think you'll see in a moment when we read through it together. Uh, Paul was frightened that all his labors in gospel ministry among the Galatians had been in vain. They had managed to twist the gospel, um, the good news of Jesus. And instead of being formed and shaped by the gospel, they were being formed and shaped by something else. Um, So let's listen to this difficult passage, and then we will rightly so ask for God's help and see how we can apply this challenging and difficult passage to ourselves. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. This is God's holy word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you, that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, 
but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us and for giving to us your very word. And at points, your word is challenging and difficult to both understand and apply. But you have given us a helper. And so we pray that he, the Holy Spirit, would come now. Be with us, be poured out into our hearts that we might understand your word and that it might be applied to us. All for the sake and for the glory of Jesus in whose name we do pray. Amen. I had a friend when we lived in, uh, in Memphis who was a woodworking hobbyist, and uh, I am not, uh, but one day he uh, brought me over to his house and he taught me how to use uh, his lathe in his wood shop, which is this machine that many of you know will rotate a block of wood at these incredibly high speeds on this axis and with a sharpened chisel-like tool, you can carve and shape uh, that piece of wood as it spins around its axis. And, you know, you start with maybe a rectangular block of wood, and as you bring this sharpened tool into contact with it and exert uh, the right amount of pressure with that sharp edge, wood shavings and sawdust start flying. And if you do it right, you know, you can form that block of wood into a beautifully rounded table leg or a, uh, an intricate, intricately designed uh, writing pen or something like that. That's what we were actually doing that day. And, um, but it takes some practice, right? With that sharp chisel, you're going to shape and form something. You do it right you come away with a beautiful piece of carved wood. Um, but do it wrong, and you spend a lot of time and effort making something completely worthless and disproportioned. You know, by the end of this passage, you hear Paul was saying, I want Jesus, I want Jesus to be formed in you. That's the goal of gospel ministry. The gospel of Jesus can set you free and shape you into the beauty you were meant to be. Oh, but you can get it wrong. You can get it so wrong. And instead of being formed into, into that, you can be formed into someone joyless and hardened and bitter and enslaved. 
So I, I just want to discuss two things with you from this passage. Um, one, formation by what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world, and then formation by the gospel of Jesus. So those, those are going to be our two points, formation by the elementary principles and formation by the gospel of Jesus. First, formation by the elementary principles. You know, Paul gets so personal at points in this, his letter to the Galatians that you really have to work to keep your eye on the ball and not forget the context of his letter. And so here's the gist of that context. Some of you have heard it before. So Paul wound up in this region of Galatia because of some kind of ailment or sickness that he mentioned in verse 13 of the passage that we read. But while he was there, he told these Gentile Galatians about Jesus. Right? He preached the gospel to them. Um, he told them, all you need to do is trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone, and all your sins will be forgiven. And you'll be clothed in Jesus' righteousness, not your own. And you'll be delighted in as God's cherished son or daughter. And, so, and many Galatians believed this message. And so Paul planted churches in this region of Galatia. But after he left, some false teachers had come in and they basically said, you know, Paul was right about needing to believe in Jesus, but, you know, he gave you a watered down version. Um, you need to believe in Jesus and there are laws you need to obey right, in order to be sure that God loves you. Laws like circumcision and certain dietary laws, and there were certain holy days in the Jewish calendar to observe. Basically, you need to become more Jewish. And they said, it's, it's all there in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And that's the context. Now pay close attention to what Paul says in this passage. Let's go to verse 11 and work our way back up from that point. Paul writes, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, why was he afraid that all of his efforts to preach the gospel to them had been in vain? Well, back up to verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years, and he's saying, look at you. You're Gentiles, and now you're observing and obeying the Jewish calendar. And you might think, well, why is that such a big deal? Now back up to verse 9. You have come to know God, or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And that little phrase, the elementary principles of the world, it, it, it's a translation of a single Greek word, the word stoikia. And it's hard to translate. I'm not going to bore, bore you with the details, but it means something like the demonic powers behind the paganism of their former Roman idolatry. 
which is why he reminded them in verse 8 about how they had been enslaved to those that by nature are not, not gods, gods like Aphrodite and Bacchus and uh, Zizamine and Zeus. And, and look, I know that I'm giving you a lot up front here, but here's what he was saying. He was saying, when you add obedience and the observation of certain laws to Jesus, there is a demonic influence that's taking you all the way back to the most basic forms of paganism. And you got to let that sink in because it's kind of hard to get your mind around because they would have thought, and you might too, no way, Paul, right? They're not toying with going back to idolatry. They're studying the Bible. But Paul was saying there is a way the elementary principles, the demonic, can use even the Bible to walk you away from Jesus and into the heart of paganism and idolatry that will enslave you and destroy your life. Let me try to help this sink in for you. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book called Screwtape Letters that maybe some of you are, are familiar with. Um, and it's this, it's an imaginary correspondence between a demon named Screwtape and his demon nephew, uh, who's named Wormwood. And it sounds kind of creepy when you say it out loud, but it, it's actually very insightful, and it's kind of humorous. But Wormwood was assigned this patient, um, little air quotes, who had become a Christian, and his uncle Screwtape was giving him advice about how to deceive him. And at one point, Screwtape says to his nephew, Wormwood, he tells him not to be discouraged because, quote, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Now imagine a demon saying, one of our greatest allies is the church. And he talks about all the ways Bible studies and liturgies and worship services and hymns and ministries of the church can be used to walk this patient away from Jesus. I'm trying to get this to sink in for you. So let me reuse an illustration from our first week of studying Galatians. Richard Griffin um, had been Queen Elizabeth's royal protection officer, basically her personal bodyguard for years. And he told a story in an interview about how the queen would often vacation at the Balmoral Castle in Scotland. And when she was there, she would go for these walks, just her and her bodyguard, Richard. And normally they wouldn't see anyone on these walks, but one particular afternoon, they happened to cross paths with these two American hikers. And um, it was obvious, he said, from the beginning that they did not recognize the queen. 
And so these Americans are just talking with the queen and her bodyguard, and they're telling her about all their travels and things they've seen and places they were going. And Richard, could, he said he could see the question coming. Eventually, this American turned and asked the queen, and where do you live? And she replied, oh, I, I live in London, but I have a holiday home just over those hills. And so the American asked how long she'd been coming here to her vacation home. She said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so about 80 years. And the American replied, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, then you must have met the queen at some point. And Richard said, as quick as a flash, she said, well, I haven't. But Richard here meets her regularly. And so the American was so excited, right? So he turned to Richard and he said, what's she like? And Richard said, well, she can be very cantankerous at times. um, But she really, she's got a lovely sense of humor. And with that, the American put his arm around Richard and handed his camera to the queen and asked her to take a picture of them, which he did. It was such a great story. Um, And there's just a little bit more. Because then Richard took the camera from the queen and said to the America, hey, hey, let me get a picture of you two before you leave. Meaning the American with his arm around the queen. And Richard took the picture and the American walked away, they they continued their hike. And can you imagine him going home and showing those pictures to his friends? Because eventually someone was going to recognize the queen in the picture and say something like, you idiot, right? That was the queen. You had your arm around her and you walked away from her without even knowing it. To add anything at all to Jesus, Paul was saying, is to walk away from Jesus without even knowing it. And that's frightening. That it is possible for you to follow Christianity and not follow Jesus Himself. You can go to a Bible study and get so worked up about all the right behaviors and what you need to be a godly man or a godly woman or whatever, and you can be walking away from Jesus without even knowing it. I mean, the church and its ministries can be the greatest ally to the elementary principles, the demonic influences. See, what happens... When you say it's Jesus and my reformed theology that tells me I'm okay, you're walking away from Jesus without even knowing it. You had your arm around Jesus and then walked away from Him. You know, what happens when you say it's Jesus and my conservative American values that makes me feel right? You're you're walking away from Jesus. 
or it's Jesus and my awareness of racial and social concerns in the world today, or it's Jesus and doing biblical parenting, whatever that is, that tells me I'm one of the good ones, or it's Jesus and my sexual purity and my virginity, or what happens when you say it's Jesus and my vision for church planting, or how various programs in the church should run, or what happens when you say it's Jesus and my work ethic, and how I keep my commitments. You know, or, what ha- or, or, or when you say it's Jesus and my view of how people should do discipleship and outreach and teach Bible studies and so on. You're walking away from Jesus, oftentimes without even knowing it. And we could do a lot more with this, right? But we've covered a lot of bases there. Because I gave you some theological ones, some cultural ones, some political ones, some moral ones, some social ones, and some ecclesiastical ones. And that covers a lot of territory. And I bet some of you thought at some point in there, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, that thing about virginity, that's kind of important. Wait a minute on that one. Don't tell my kids that. Um, Of course these are important things. I tried to pick only important things to list here. And the point is, it doesn't matter. Paul is saying it does not matter what you add. If you add anything to Jesus, you are walking away from him without even knowing it. So how do you know if you've done that? How do you know if you're doing that right now? My kids who are driving right now, one thing I tell them is that if that little red oil can pops up on your dashboard, you need to stop the car immediately, right? You need to figure out what that means before you move one more foot. You know what that little red light on the dashboard of your heart is? It's anger. It's anger. It's when you become mad at the people you used to love for telling you about Jesus. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He's saying you were so hospitable when I had that bodily ailment, whatever that was. You would have gouged out your eyes for me. You were so hospitable, and now you're hostile. Verse 15, Paul asks, what then has become of your blessedness? And that word blessedness means happiness. What happened to your happiness? What happened to your joy? What made you so hard and bitter and critical And so full of complaining, so quick to complain. The Galatians had a friend in Paul who was willing to tell them the truth. So let me try to be that friend to some of you this morning. Because I've seen some of you angry. And I've seen some of you divisive and critical and complaining and hard. And I am concerned for your heart. Because the elementary principles, they are so obviously forming you. Pay attention to that. Be curious about that anger. You know, self-righteousness is really, really hard to catch 
Because to you, it just feels like righteousness. And you're walking away from Jesus. Step by step. Often without even knowing it. All right. Everybody uncomfortable? Um, Good. Uh, Because that's what makes you ready to hear about an alternative way to live. So let's talk about being formed by the gospel of Jesus. Um, So I want to tell you three things in this point, because I think Paul gives us an example of gospel formation. And then he tells us the source of gospel formation. And then he tells us about the process of gospel formation. An example of gospel formation. Look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, For I also have become as you are. It's very, very similar to what Paul says in more detail to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he writes, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law of God. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And at first you might look at that and say, man, Paul had a problem with people-pleasing. Kind of wishy-washy. Um, but that's not it at all. And I want, to, I want to help you understand because this is fascinating to me. Because I would argue that more than any other letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament, he is saying so clearly in this letter, I am unwilling to budge on the truth. I will not budge on the gospel. I'll fight anyone, he says, even an angel from heaven about this gospel. That's Galatians chapter 1, by the way. He's saying, I will not compromise one inch on this. Not an inch. I'll even fight the other apostles about it, namely Peter. And that's in Galatians chapter 2. I'll call anyone out on this. Oh, foolish Galatians, he wrote in chapter 3. You idiots. He is unyielding and inflexible about the gospel of Jesus. But, but, he's saying, I can be flexible on anything else. To paraphrase um, preacher Tim Keller, he, write, or he says, the mark of maturity and of believing and understanding the gospel is that you don't make a federal case out of the, de- out of the details anymore. Right? And the mark of immaturity and not understanding the gospel, you, quote, take the details of how a church does things or how a culture works and you insist on everything being done right. And you get wrapped around the axle about building programs and how people dress and the style of music in the worship service and what school your kids go to and how this or that ministry program works and how people vote and on and on we could go. You know, Christianity is this unique stance on a firm, unmoving pillar of objective truth, an unwillingness to budge 
on the gospel of Jesus. And at the same time, it is so very flexible. And I want to ask you, if you're a Christian, are you growing in your flexibility? In becoming like those you say you want to reach, are you asking them to become like you? Becoming like someone who's so different from you in order to love them and reach them? Are you able not to sweat the details and be flexible on where you go and how you spend your time and what you talk about and all because you love them and want them to have your greatest treasure which isn't a Sunday school building or even a new church plan or a copy of R.C. Sproul's Chosen by God or the way you parent. Your greatest treasure is Jesus. And that's what we want to give to Baton Rouge and the world. Are you able to be flexible in doing that? That's his example of gospel formation taking place, which brings me to the source of gospel formation. At the beginning of verse 9, Paul wrote, But now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. I don't think erasers uh, were invented in the first century. Um, And it's almost like, as I read this, it's almost like Paul catches and corrects himself mid-sentence. And he says, or rather, be known by God. He's not saying that they don't know God. What he's saying is, ultimately... What makes you a Christian is being known by God. You know, knowing in the Bible isn't merely intellectual, it's relational, right? It's deep, personal, intimate knowledge. Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. Deep, intimate, personal knowledge, though, it's a complicated thing, right? Because more than anything, I can look out at all of you this morning and say, I know what you want. You want someone to know you. And I can also tell you this, everyone in this room, there is nothing that terrifies you more than that prospect. Because what if someone actually saw into your heart and saw who you really were, you're terrified that they would scream in horror at what they saw and run as fast and far away from you as they could. And Paul is saying what makes someone a Christian is that God knows you intimately, deeply, personally to the very bottom of your soul and He loves you and He is crazy about you. And if you get that, look, you're free. Period. End of discussion. Because the only thing that matters is what He thinks of you. And in Jesus, He loves you to the moon and back. And not one little thing you could ever do could make Him love you more than He does right now. And not one little thing could you ever do that would make Him love you less than He does right now. And if you got that, you're free. And I'm saying don't walk away from Jesus in your self-righteousness. 
into inflexibility and slavery and hardness and joylessness. And last, Paul tells us something about the process of gospel formation. So in verse 17, Paul said, these false teachers wanted to make much of the Galatians so that the Galatians would make much of them. That's a big tell for identifying false teachers. Ultimately, it's about the leader, the leaders, the preacher, the Bible study teacher, whoever. Way more could be said about that, um, but not today. Just a heads up on that, right? But then Paul says next what he wants for the Galatians. This is the goal of gospel ministry, according to Paul. Verse 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's tough to follow because Paul's kind of mixing up his, no, not kind of, he's mixing up his metaphors. He says, I'm in the pain of childbirth until Jesus is formed in you, which means they're pregnant with Jesus. Um, When you believe in Jesus, he comes to live in you by his spirit. And to be formed by Jesus is to love him, is to commune with him, it's to be known by him. And over time, and through often what is a long and painful process, I was in in the room for the birth of all my kids. It it looked really painful, right? But over time, Paul is saying, as you love him, as you're known by him, as you commune with him, you're being conformed into his image, into his likeness, made like him. So in the last um, Lord of the Rings movie... um, The armies were encamped on the Dunharrow Plateau preparing for the last great battle. And Aragorn, the character Aragorn, was in his tent and he was getting ready and preparing for the battle. And see, Aragorn was the the heir to the throne of Gondor, if you didn't know. Um, But up until this point, Aragorn had been playing the part of a wandering, shiftless ranger. And Elrond the Elf, sorry about all these characters I'm throwing at you. Elrond the Elf, um, it's fantasy by the way, um, came to visit Aragorn in his tent. And he presented Aragorn with Aragorn's father's sword, Andoril, flame of the west forged from the shards of Narsal. And as he gave Aragorn the sword, he looked Aragorn in the eye. And he said to him, put aside the ranger and become the man you were born to be. Paul is saying, my labor is not that you would make much of me, but that you would make much of Jesus and that Jesus would make much of you. Put aside the ranger and become who you were born to be in Jesus. Love him. And let him form you and shape you into his likeness. Rest in him. And rest in him alone. Love him. Rest in being known and loved by him. And Paul is saying that's going to change you 
that's going to form you, that's going to shape you, that's going to make you like the son of the king. You really are. I'm going to end with this. Um, to be quite honest, um, I was scared to say some of the things that I said today in this sermon, but here's what I'm taking with me. And I really hope you will too. Whatever you think of me, Jesus loves me. This I know. He knows me to the bottom of my soul and he delights in me as his child. And I'm not being cocky about that. I mean, he doesn't love me because of anything I've done or anything I haven't done. He loves me just because he loves me in Jesus. And I'm free. And so you know what? I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. And you should too. And you can. If you rest in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for even the most difficult and challenging passages of Scripture that are hard to understand. But not only hard to understand, they're just hard to have applied to us because they very often expose us. And so, Father, I pray that we would learn from the Apostle Paul this morning, above all things, to run into the arms of Jesus and to rest in Him and rest in Him alone and to know that we are set free in Him and for that to drive us out in love and joy to serve those around us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this audio sermon of South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Please feel free to pass it along to others who might be encouraged by this message. Also, if you have any questions or would like to know more about the church or a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, please feel free to browse our website at www.sbrpc.org or contact the church office directly at area code 225-768-9999. Again, thank you for listening.